Happy birthday, America, and happy 4th of July to all my fellow American Constant listeners. Doesn't the 4th just conjure up certain images in one's mind? You've got the summer heat, cookouts, and of course, uh, the fireworks. And by the way, don't tell the radical environmentalists down the road, but the 4th of July probably has one of the highest carbon footprint holidays you'll find on the calendar, which, by the way, I've got no problem with. But uh, strangely for me, the 4th holiday also reminds me of tennis. Tennis, ironically, in England, the place we broke free from and that which we commemorate on the 4th. Now, when I say tennis in England, I mean as in Wimbledon. And it's always around the 4th of July when the finals at the most historic of tennis tournaments take place. NBC in the States, I remember them always televising the finals with the Breakfast at Wimbledon program over the weekend that sits around the 4th. And that leads us to our dedication for this episode 111. Because the match that most experts say is the greatest in the history of the sport of tennis occurred at Wimbledon in the men's final this week, not that long ago, back in 2008. The combatants were two of the greatest in the sport's history, of course, Federer and Nadal, and just a little bit of setup to the 2008 epic Wimbledon final. So the prior year, 2007, had a final matchup that saw the same two greats squaring off against one another. And that match prior to the 2008 Epic was considered one of the best finals in the history of tennis uh, before the 08 matchup occurred. And Roger Federer won in 2007 in five sets over Nadal. But their 2008 rematch, that was even better. Um, Like most special events, a group of key factors coalesced to create something unique. Um, First, Nadal and Federer had already developed a must-see rivalry, so everybody wanted to see those two square off. Second, um, Federer, he was the king of Wimbledon at the time. He won the previous five Wimbledon titles in a row, so he was on a run. And then third, as I said, um, Roger's epic five-set victory over Rafa Nadal in the 07 final heightened the anticipation uh, for the meeting they had in 2008. So there was a lot of buzz going into this 08 finals, to say the least. What transpired was almost five hours of classic tennis, It was the longest final in Wimbledon history, and Wimbledon's got a long history. Um, The tally was Nadal winning the first two sets, Federer winning the next two sets after that in tiebreakers, both of them, and then Nadal taking the decisive fifth set in a tiebreaker 9-7. The match ended up uh, closing and wrapping up at 9.16 p.m. local time in a shroud of darkness. It was basically just about dark by that time. And Federer fought off two match points against him in the fourth set. And the match, I think, was twice interrupted by rain. But, uh, you know, despite the rain delays, the intensity never waned. An amazing stat from that final. Think about this. Federer finished the match with 89 winners, and he lost the match. (laughs) So what did uh, John McEnroe think of the match? He said, this is the greatest match I've ever seen. And John McEnroe would know, as he was not a stranger to Wimbledon greatness himself. So if you've got time on a flight or on a rainy day, go to YouTube, punch in that final from 2008 outside of London. Just about every other tennis match you'll see after that will pale in comparison. And by the way, are you a Nadal or a Federer type? Uh, Those two players, they seem to break people down into distinct categories, Uh, much like dog or cat person or Coke or Pepsi. Um, Remember taste great, less filling? Remember that uh, sort of contrast or breakdown? Personally, I do admire both players, uh, but I have to say I'm more of a Federer fan if I had to pick one of the two. 
Let's jump right into a connection that deals with rivals, but unlike Federer and Nadal slugging it out for a trophy in a marathon with rackets on a court, uh, these two rivals that we're going to talk about, Russia and Ukraine, they're dueling in a war of life and death and attrition, and they're using tanks and guns and missiles and grenades across a continent. So I do receive inbounds from time to time asking why I don't discuss the Ukraine war more often on the far middle. Got an interest in military history and geopolitics and current affairs, and it seems it would be a natural topical fit each week. And I suppose there's a point there, and I do follow actually the developments of the war closely, but you know they change so rapidly and so much of the information is sketchy or cloudy at best that I've tended to not discuss much there beyond the bigger picture. But here is an aspect to the war since its inception that I always found different than other historical conflicts and that we can certainly discuss on this episode of The Far Middle. And it speaks to what I'd call the asymmetrical nature of this war, geographically, that is. It just strikes me as strange, and I wonder what your thoughts would be once I sort of paint the, uh, the issue for you. So if you think of a, a mental map of the Ukraine in your head, you probably understand by now that the fighting is along the eastern and southeastern portions of the Ukraine in regions like Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea. Uh, that's where Russia is still occupying huge swaths of those different regions. And it's a long front line. It's about 900 miles in total length, which in American terms, that's about the distance from New Orleans to Chicago. But Ukraine shares a much larger and longer border with its enemies, Russia and Belarus, hundreds and hundreds of more miles of hostile border, in fact, beyond the 900 miles of the hot border. And that has created a strange sort of asymmetrical risk in this war, meaning that Russia and its ally, it focused all of their resources into pressing the attack along Ukraine's east and south, again, Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea, which is a relatively concentrated front, and it allows for the buildup and concentration of resources to press Ukraine. But Ukraine doesn't have that luxury as a defensive player fighting for its existence. It has to not only defend those three regions to the east and to its south, but it also has to deploy resources to defend its entire northern border along Russia and Belarus. That, to me, seems like a huge tactical and perhaps strategic disadvantage for Ukraine. But we know well by now that Ukraine, it's scrappy and is very adept at turning disadvantages or challenges into advantages and opportunities. So just think of the uh, turnaround during the early stages of the invasion. Shocking, actually, to me this day, the Ukraine held the line to the extent that it did. Or the counteroffensive last year in 22 and early 23 this year when Ukraine took back large swaths of the occupied territories and how Ukraine made Bakhmut into a Russian meat grinder of misery. So let's see if the resourceful Ukrainians they take that disadvantage of a much larger border to defend into an advantage. And one indication that Ukraine might already be doing just that was the anti-Putin Russian opposition group, or groups, I suppose, who took over a small swath near Belgorod in late May. So you're already maybe seeing some of that flipping of the script, so to speak, by the Ukraine. This talk of Ukraine brings to mind the debate in the United States about whether we should send aid to the Ukraine or not. Do we support nations resisting our adversaries, or do we instead stay out of foreign entanglements and invest the money at home into pressing domestic issues and needs? Well, that draws out a, a connection that fits well here, which is how the federal government budget is evolving. You know, I can tell you it's evolving quickly and not in a good way. 
I saw data for federal budget spending by category as both a percent of the fiscal year of 2022 budget total, as well as a percent of GDP. Some of these data may surprise you, constant listeners, so I thought it would be a good topic for this episode to share with you. What's the single largest spending category in the federal budget? Answer, Social Security at 19% of the budget and 5% of GDP. Interesting to realize that nearly one out of every $5 spent by the federal government goes to Social Security. Now, healthcare, if you include Medicaid and Medicare together, is actually larger than Social Security and comes in at 27% of budget. I lump those two healthcare categories together, but the CBO um, treats them as separate, which is why Social Security comes in as the officially highest outlay. So using far middle or CBO categories with the federal budget, either way you cut it, when you add it all up, Social Security and healthcare entitlements, together they comprise almost half, 50% of total federal budget outlays. Now, national defense, it's quite modest by comparison uh, to what we just discussed. It comes in at about 12% of total budget. But the category I am watching closely is outlays for net interest. In fiscal year 2022, it comprised 8% of the budget, and it's growing for two reasons. First, we continue to post massive deficits each year, and that adds to the debt pile that we're going to have to pay interest on. And then second, inflation's raging, and the Fed has to finally get around to raising, or more appropriately, maybe normalizing interest rates, which increases the service cost of that debt and its outlays. Now, what this tells us, dear taxpayers, is that the federal government is in trouble with its finances. Nearly 60% of the budget each year is now going to three things, Social Security, healthcare entitlements, and interest on the debt. And all three are going up faster than tax receipts are going up, which is going to balloon the deficit even further. And without entitlement reform, the math can't work. And without higher taxes or less tax credits and less subsidy, the math can't work. I don't like those two conclusions any more than you, but to ignore them or pretend them away, it's not going to make it better. It's only going to make it worse. There are more than a few root causes driving the federal government budgetary mess we are in. Now, one root cause, all the policies and regulations and programs tied to the energy transition that result in massive budget deficits and that stoke inflation, and not just with the federal government, but also with certain state governments like California. That leads us to the next connection, which is what Governor Newsom out there in Cali is wanting to do with red tape when it comes to favored energy projects in his state. Now, this is going to get filed in the drawer labeled ironic, which is by now an overstuffed cabinet drawer in the far middle archives after over 110 episodes. Anyway, here is the irony with the current connection. California has been controlled and run by the left for decades. One of the tactics the left and the extreme environmental movement adopted in state was using the environmental review processes to derail and stop just about any project one could imagine when it came to transportation or site development or energy infrastructure. The project would either be killed or scrapped, or in the alternative, it would be severely delayed and inflated with cost overruns. You know, progress is the enemy with the left, after all. Well, it turns out, that the left and the environmental movement out on the West Coast, they got too good at running the blocking and tackling of progress because it's stopping all kinds of wind and solar and electric vehicle and battery projects in the state. So Governor Newsom 
calls in May for the state legislature to pass bills that would place a nine-month cap on environmental review for what he calls eligible projects. What would be eligible, you ask? Just the subjectively favored one. A wind farm here, a solar array there, a charging station over yonder. Certainly not natural gas or pipelines or oil. You know, just the arbitrary winners that mirror the chosen ones in climate policies. Now you get the irony, right? The left takes control of a place like California. It then imposes tactics like environmental reviews to stop progress and punish value creation. And then it also mandates climate policies that force some envisioned transition and state-sponsored energy and transportation build-out. But then the tactics duel and collide. One leftist tactic stops the other leftist tactic, to the point where the head leftist, in this connection the governor, has to call for the left to save itself from itself. Reminds me of that visual of the snake eating its tail. Now, while the left is hard at work eating itself, it is also working tirelessly to indoctrinate the next generation of believers and, in the end, willing victims. And the left starts young with the next generation when it comes to indoctrination. That will serve as a great next connection. There's a new trend occurring in the ever-searching value-appropriating industry that is the plaintiff's bar, and it seems that more and more lawsuits are popping up across the United States where minors, from teenagers down to as young as preschoolers, are suing their governments, from states to the federal government itself. Now, for what are they suing? What causes of action? Well, let's think about all the things the government is failing our youth on that could serve as causes of action or lawsuits. It's an extensive list, unfortunately. We've covered a lot of those in prior episodes of The Far Middle. There's the inability of public education to teach basic, acceptable proficiency in reading and math and science and civics as well. How many times have we raised and discussed those issues on The Far Middle? Um, speaking of education, how about how government creates a legal license for universities to steal from students and parents, burdening them with lifelong debt and poor job prospects? That stinks. Or how about the current generation leaving our youth insurmountable debt loads that will burden their government's ability to invest in their future severely hampered? That's not right. Or think of entitlements and how they mortgage the future of the youth to curry favor with voters today. That doesn't seem ethical. And last but not least, my favorite, attacking vital industries in energy and manufacturing, which will deny the middle class and working poor families the opportunity to send their young adults into careers that don't require college degrees and to pay family-sustaining wages. That should be a tort for sure. Yeah, there are many potential causes of action for today's youth when it comes to having a bone to pick with government and its policies. But the kids aren't suing governments in America for these wrongs. Instead, they're suing over, drumroll please, climate change. Of course they are. Remember, I said at the start that this is a tactic brought to you by the left. Now, some of these lawsuits, they're against states, specifically states where the state constitution mentions some sort of right to clean air or a healthy environment. Other lawsuits have been filed against Uncle Sam itself, as in the federal government, arguing there is an inferred constitutional right to a stable climate, whatever that means. You read a little further into these suits and what they allege, and you quickly sniff the grievance trend that's everywhere with the younger generation these days. And of course, it comes with an undercurrent of anxiety. Juveniles are stressed about climate, and they want to sue the government. Hey, stay tuned on this one as time unfolds, because we know for sure the left will ratchet the intensity up 
and the plaintiff's bar will persistently run down any chance they see for value appropriation. Now, for all you old constant listeners like myself, I sadly add, who think that all we do is focus on the next generation on this podcast, this is a connection just for you. Because when it comes to the zealotry and blind obedience to the church of climate, a full spectrum of generations has fallen under the spell. From the teens filing lawsuits to our next subject, 84 years old, who used to be the Secretary of the Treasury and the head of Goldman Sachs, I'm speaking of Robert Rubin. He remains productive for an 84-year-old, props to him for that, having published yet another book. And on his book promo tour, he sat down for an interview that I had a chance to read. And I can tell you it was climate change sermon from the altar of environmentalism. So he started out by making the obligatory reference to, and I'm going to intone the deep foreboding voice now, the existential threat of climate change as a risk facing us that is on par with China and uh, nuclear proliferation, AI, pandemics, and all kinds of other threats that we know for sure, by the way, with those threats that will bite us because they have already or they continue to. Look, climate change, as we discussed last week when we were talking about opioids and the opioid crisis, it's nowhere near the risk of the others that I just mentioned. Iran can kill who knows how many millions with an itchy trigger. Um, tens of millions can be wiped out with nature simply modifying a harmless virus into something deadly. And this isn't the same thing as saying climate change isn't occurring. Of course it is. It has for millions, literally millions of years. Or saying that CO2 hasn't increased in the atmosphere as humans evolved and innovated. Of course it has. But you know, when it comes to uh, Mr. Rubin's interview, it got better in this sit-down conversation. Um, he provided a mea culpa for, of all things, not listening to Al Gore more back in the day when Gore warned Rubin about the dangers of climate change. OMG. You know, I don't think you should apologize for that. You should be proud of not listening to the inventor of the internet. And Rubin, he amps up the elitism even more by jumping from Buddy and Sage Al Gore to another one of his friends, billionaire and climate alarmist Tom Steyer. Rubin discussed how Steyer just knew for certain, he just knew, that any massive mandated changes to our economy forced by climate policies would not only save the planet, but it would also add all kinds of fabulous jobs and boost GDT, GDP Excuse me, on top of it. Sure it will. But the level of elite, it gets set on turbo toward the end of the interview. So check this out from Rubin, perhaps you know, one of the penultimate illustrations of elite arrogance. He says that even if acting on climate change, and I'm going to use his words now, is a net job negative, that's irrelevant in the face of the end of life on Earth as we know it. Wow. You know, irrelevant, Mr. Rubin? Really? To whom would it be irrelevant? The working men and women who lose their jobs, the kids in their future, uh, the working destitute in the developing world who we simultaneously hold back and exploit with these policies, uh, the next generation that we burden with massive debt loads with all the deficit spending by government, that the climate policies require, the middle class that experience quality of life theft from the thief known as inflation, or maybe Ukrainians and Taiwanese that will be killed when China and Russia warmonger once they figure out that the West has ceded its energy security through climate policy. Maybe all of the above. And this was from the prior head of Goldman Sachs and a prior Treasury secretary. Frightening stuff as well as sobering and scary. Now, I'm going to leave you with one of his quotes that made me smile after reading through all the prior material I just covered. 
Rubin said, too many people and too many of our institutions have responded by rushing toward absolutes and simplistic answers. Actually, that was taken from his new book, which is 100% opposite of his lecturing on climate change. He's guilty of exactly what he is lamenting. So yes, I, I take exception with a lot of what Robert Rubin said and what is in his book. But with your host being both a bibliophile and a free speech advocate, I support Rubin in his book, Fire Away and Right Away. Speaking of books, the first day of this episode's airing, July 5th, marks the anniversary of the publication of one of the most important and influential books ever in 1687. Now, the official title, which is in Latin, and forgive my Latin here, it reads, Philosophe Naturalis Principia Mathematica. Now, in plain English, that translates to the mathematical principles of natural philosophy, but it is most commonly referred to as simply the Principia, and the author was none other than Isaac Newton, and in this work, he laid out his famous and disruptive laws of motion and his law of universal gravitation. His work changed everything, and just about everything you enjoy today in modern society was impacted by Newton's thoughts. Now, the Principia might just be the most important work in the history of science. A famous French mathematical physicist opined about Principia that the famous book of mathematical principles of natural philosophy marked the epoch of a great revolution in physics. The method followed by its illustrious author, Sir Newton, spread the light of mathematics on a science which up to then had remained in the darkness of conjectures and hypotheses. It's a great quote. A more recent assessment has been that while acceptance of Newton's laws was not immediate, by the end of the century after publication in 1687, quote, no one could deny that a science had emerged that, at least in certain respects, so far exceeded anything that had ever gone before that it stood alone as the ultimate exemplar of science generally, end quote. A very interesting and timely section of Principia is found at the beginning of Book 3, and it's a section titled Rules of Reasoning in Philosophy. Here, Newton lays out four rules, four of them, that comprise a methodology for handling unknown phenomena in nature and developing explanations for them. Now, the first two rules I'd like to highlight for you here today, and I think of them in the context of how the scientific method within our climate change movement has been overthrown and replaced with the fervor of the science. But check out the first two of Newton's four rules of reasoning. First rule, we are to admit no more causes of natural things than such as are both true and sufficient to explain their appearances. So you consider that sensical rule in the context of a changing complex climate over millions of years, how we used to explain it under the scientific method, and today how we explain every tornado, drought, and weather pattern is being caused by the sin of an improving human quality of life under the science. So a scientist in 1900, let's say, who heard someone saying the tornado that ripped through town was God punishing the evil townsfolk, would recognize that for what it was, a violation of this first rule of Newton and more religion than science. But today, the self-described scientist is likely to point to precipitation, let's say, in California during the wet season and say out loud, this has to be the work of climate change brought on by the unethical ways of humans today. Does that sound like a scientist or a preacher? You tell me what Newton would say about that. And then rule number two, 
for reasoning from Principia. Therefore, to the same natural effects we must, as far as possible, assign the same causes. Okay, that's a simple rule. And again, same type of hypothetical in comparison as before. In, say, 1800, a hurricane was caused by the laws of thermodynamics and motion and physics. But today, a similar hurricane is not resulting from those things, and instead, it's brought on by something entirely new. And only repenting from our evil lifestyle ways and replacing it with worship of the earth at the Church of Climate is going to protect us. We could spend an entire episode or a month's worth of episodes diving deeper on how the climate change racket of today violates Newton's rules time and again. Suffice to say, when it comes to the four rules of reasoning in philosophy from Principia, society has regressed from where Newton first led us in the 1600s. That would be disappointing to him, and it certainly is disappointing to your host. Now, one final interesting tidbit about Principia. It almost wasn't published. You see, Newton's publisher earlier published a book about the history of fish, and the cost for that endeavor went way over budget, almost financially wrecking the publisher from even considering taking on the publication of the Principia. Now, luckily, the publisher went ahead with the Newton book, and the world has never been the same since. Can't tell you, though, how impactful the fish history book ended up being. Let's end on maybe a less serious note, a lighter note, and connect to another July 5th anniversary for a publication. Now, this is a different type of publication than a book on science, but it is one that in some ways was just as groundbreaking, at least in its field, which was music. In 1954, on this day, a singer by the name of Elvis Presley wrapped his first professional recording session at Sam Phillips Memphis Recording Service, which of course was in Memphis, Tennessee. Elvis, along with his two bandmates, they recorded four songs, including his now famous and historic cover of That's All Right. After that, the Elvis train was off and running, as was rock and roll. But his debut hit single, it was a little bit of an accident to a certain extent. So during a break between recordings and studio that early July, Elvis started to improvise an up-tempo version of the song That's All Right Mama from the 1940s. And his bass player joined in, as did the other guitarist that was with him. And famous record producer Sam Phillips, he heard them improvising and he liked the upbeat tempo. So he asked the three to start again so he could record it. And the rest, as I said, is history. Now, to put Elvis in perspective, I always try to reference fellow titans from the era. And here are two who summed up Elvis. Chuck Berry, okay, another rock and roll founding father. Quote, describe Elvis Presley. He was the greatest who ever was, is, or ever will be. Well said, Chuck. And how about James Brown, the godfather of soul himself? Quote, I wasn't just a fan. I was his brother. He said I was good, and I said he was good. We never argued about that. And then Brown went on, there will never be another like that soul brother. Don't take my word for it, constant listeners. Take James Brown and Chuck Berry's word for it. Now, what's the best Elvis single? Wow, now that's, that's a tough one to choose and a lot to ask to pin down just one out of dozens. And I'm sort of partial, I think, to Elvis in his later years, the Vegas Elvis. So what was that, the late 60s or early 70s? How about instead we cover the Mount Rushmore of Elvis songs from the late 60s, early 70s era? So let's see. I think one of the four will have to be a little less conversation. It's up there as one of my all-time favorites. And I like In the Ghetto, 
which I think is also from the same era as A Little Less Conversation. So there's number two. And Burning Love, classic Elvis, is it not? Uh, put that one up there on Mount Rushmore of the later era of Elvis. But if I had to pick only one Elvis tune from that later era, I would go with Suspicious Minds. Love that song. Sort of has that Phil Spector wall of sound quality to it. In fact, it might be my favorite Elvis song of any era. Okay, time to roll on out of number 111. And before you know it, we will be rolling right into episode 112. And until then, in the words of Elvis, don't be cruel. <laughs>